you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open uh, to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 37. While you do that, I'm going to grab this water. So my voice is right on the verge of being gone, so um, if we lose it halfway, then congratulations to you, I guess. Um, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Let's read God's word together. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God... It stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach this portion of your holy and inerrant word, uh, Father, we cry out to you once again our complete inability. We cry out to you uh, our lack of understanding. Uh, Lord, we need you to speak to us in a clear way. Uh, Lord, the reality is, is our hearts long above all else to learn from you, to hear from you, to see Jesus. And yet our sin so often keeps us from that, and so we pray that you would be pleased to meet with us, that you would be pleased to even teach us today the truths that you would have, have us learn here in this passage. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A Samaritan and his neighbor. Well, as you may or may not know, The season of giving is officially upon us. Now, I say that you may not know because I don't base that statement on some arbitrary date or some artificial method of telling that it's time. I'm not looking to the Today Show or somewhere else to tell me. No, I know the season of giving is here but because last week I received my first Christmas gift. The first Christmas gift I receive every year a ball about yay size of Edom, Mississippi State cheese. It's Christmas, y'all. It's time. It's here. You can go and tell your friends. You can go and tell your loved ones. It is the Christmas season. The season of giving has arrived. Now, I say that to say that normally when the, the Christmas season arrives, when this season of giving comes upon us, we have a desire, maybe more than any other time of the year, to show those around us uh, in tangible ways how much we care, how much they mean to us. 
Now, often that begins with our families, certainly, uh, but usually during this season, it extends far further than that, right? Uh, we have Christmas parties to attend, you know, office parties, Sunday school parties. We try to show our love to those who are near to us in that way. Uh, usually we try to find those who are less fortunate and we try to give to them as well during this season. Those are great things. And of course, we usually uh, try, if we have neighbors, we try to give to our neighbors. Maybe you bake cookies with your kids and you take them out to all of the people around you. Uh, maybe you buy little treats and stick them in their mailboxes, or maybe you're just mo- more apt to, to say a kind word to that neighbor across the street or that person next to you. Whatever it is, it seems that, that we are compelled during this time uh, to really care for people in a real and tangible way. Now, as Christians, we can talk about why we're not compelled to do that all the time, year-round, because maybe we should be, but the reason I set all of that up is to ask you this question. With the the Christmas season in our minds, how far would you be willing to go in extending kindness? How far would you be willing to take your good acts? Uh, For instance, uh, what if uh, or would you be willing uh, to give until it became slightly uncomfortable to you? Would you be willing to, to sacrifice your own finances, your own ability to get, your own happiness for the sake of someone else? Again, I think most of us would probably be willing to do that for our families, but, but what about our coworkers? What about our neighbors? What about a complete stranger? Again, maybe, but let's take it one step further. What if our neighbor was someone that, that really just rubs us the wrong way? But what if our neighbor was someone that that we really just couldn't stand to be around? What if they were, in fact, our enemy? Now, that that sounds unfamiliar to us, maybe, but think about those Christians that are in Pakistan or China or Turkey, where this is their reality. Their next-door neighbor may, in fact, be their enemy. Would you, in that case... Be willing to give to that person. Would you be willing to give of yourself freely to someone who you knew did not have your best interest at heart? Again, we might give a lot of different answers to that. And so maybe, maybe the better question for us to consider this morning is what, does, what would Christ have us do? What, what, was, what is his response or what, is, what would he have our response be to those we come into contact with? Who truly is our neighbor, and which ones are we really obligated to love and to care for? Well, in our passage today, he is going to give us the answer clearly and definitively through this parable that is so familiar to us, this parable of the Good Samaritan. And what I want us to see here really are kind of two big picture things. One, I want us to see the the obvious and all-inclusive command that Christ gives us to love our neighbor. Now look, we can't get around what Jesus says here. It it is clear as as day, right? We can't rationalize it. We can't adjust it. We can't dismiss it. What Jesus commands us to do here is to love in a way that is uncomfortable. He calls us here to love people in a way that we are not prone to do. And so we need to see that this is a call to go out and to do something, okay? So we don't want to dismiss that. But secondly, 
And maybe more importantly, I also want you to see in this passage that, that what Jesus is doing is he's giving us a story that is to serve as sort of a litmus test of our own spiritual condition. You know, this, this lawyer, he shows up with all kind of self-righteous assumptions about who he is and what his spiritual condition is. And Jesus intends to help him see the reality there. He wants him to see the sin that is in his heart. And he wants to show him that he has a great need for God's mercy. Friends, that is the heart of this parable before us today. It's not so much what we are supposed to go do, though we're going to learn a lot about that. The heart of this parable is God's mercy to us. And so my prayer today is that we will see both of those things, that we will be able to go out with joy, rejoicing with love, because of God's mercy that we find here. So let's look at it together. The first thing that I want you to see in this passage is a lawyer's question. <clears throat> Sorry, a lawyer's questions. Now there's two of them, right? You notice there in verse 25, he says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this begins very promisingly, right? This, this is a really good question. This is, in a lot of ways, the question that we all must wrestle with at some point. What happens after this life, and how do we end up with the King of Kings? How, do, how is it that we can have eternal salvation with our God? This is a good question. But notice, in this case at least, it's a good question with bad motives. Again, there at the beginning of verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to him to test him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, he's there to put Jesus to the test. Now, it's interesting to remember our context here, right? Uh, you remember last week in verse 21, Jesus was rejoicing in the Father and in the Holy Spirit, this triune joy that we saw and you remember what he said there in verse 21. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from who? From the wise and the understanding, and that you have revealed them to little children. Now here, immediately, we have one before us who in the world's eyes certainly is wise, who has understanding. He, is, he would know the Old Testament. He would know the scriptures. He would know all the rabbinic Jewish tradition. Here is one who, in the, by the world's standards, is wise. He, he knows everything that he needs to know. But notice from the very beginning, his question does the exact opposite, right? It proves his lack of understanding. Not only is he maybe here to put God to the test, maybe he doesn't understand that, but that's what he's doing. He's putting the second person of the Trinity to test. But listen to how he phrases his question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to get myself into your kingdom, into God's kingdom? His assumption is that there is a sort of get-into-heaven checklist, right? That, that he himself, he can do enough good things. He has the ability to accomplish whatever needs to be accomplished to get to the place that ultimately he wants to be. 
But notice again how Christ attempts to show him the truth of his situation. He answers a question with a question there in verse 26. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now he goes right back to the place where this man would have been very familiar, right? This is, he knows the word. He knows the Old Testament. And so he sends him back. He, he's, he's kind of arguing on his grounds. He says, what, what does God's word say? And notice, he does know God's word. He knows it well because he answers directly from Deuteronomy 6. He answers from Leviticus 19. He says, oh, well, the law says to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. He knows the right answers. Hear me when I say that. He knows the truth. He knows what he should say. And Jesus, he affirms that. He says, you got it. Now go and live that way. Go and do it. Easy enough, right? But what's the problem here? Well, if this man had any uh, honesty with himself, if we are honest with ourselves, we know that these words, go and do the law, they're a lot easier said than done, aren't they? In fact, we know our own hearts. It is impossible for us to do what Jesus is calling this man to do, right? This love that he says, you go and you love people this way, it is not just some earthly man-made love. It's not the kind of love that we generally have for one another. No, this is a holy, perfect love. This is God's love. He says, you go and love that way. Which one of us is able to achieve that? You see, the knowledge of God's law that this lawyer had in his mind, a clear and right law, it should have been enough to bring him to his knees. It should have been enough for him to say, I'm undone. I'm helpless here. I cannot do this. But the reality is, is what's in his mind, the theology that is in his mind, where has it not made it? It's not made it down to his heart. He has not applied these truths actually to his life. Again, hear me say that. We're blessed to be in a church, and I say this, I feel like every week, but in a church where most of us have grown up here, where most of you, I know, know the truth of God's word. Friends, the reality is it's not just assent to knowledge. It's not just knowledge in our minds. The question is, has that knowledge changed our lives? Has it done anything to our hearts? Is it causing us more and more to lean upon Jesus? Or do we do like this man does here, this lawyer, do we attempt to justify ourselves? Notice what he says there in verse 29. Jesus says, you go and you do this, and it almost seems as if the law does its work, right? There for almost just a moment, he's right there at the cusp. Because apparently he sees the fact that, hey, I've not loved my neighbor as I should. There's people that I don't like. There's people that I don't want to love. And so instead of admitting his guilt, what does he do? He says, well, you know, I've done pretty good. I've loved the people that I'm supposed to love. I've loved the people who have been kind to me. Who, in fact, really is my neighbor? Let's redefine this whole thing. Jesus, you tell me. Who is it that is my neighbor? Rather than cry out for mercy, this man attempts to rationalize 
his own shortcomings. Now, that's going to lead us directly into the parable that we're so familiar with. But before we go there, let's pause just for a moment. How much do we see ourselves in this lawyer? How much do we see our own spiritual condition in this man? I'll be honest with you, as I worked through this passage this week, it was just one gut punch after the other. Because how often do I try to earn my own salvation? How often do I try to earn God's love? You know, if I will only do this, then God will feel differently about me than he does now. If I do this, then I'll get on God's good side. He will bless me. He'll do all of these great things. That's that's just trying to save ourselves. That's all it is. How often, on the other hand, is the theological knowledge that's in my head just that? Theological knowledge that's in my head. Theological knowledge that's never made a difference in my life. How often, knowing the truth, truth that should bring me to my knees, do I stand before God in an attempt to justify myself, saying things like, well, God, it was really their fault. They did it. Or saying things like, well, God, what did you really mean when you said neighbor? Did you really mean every... How often do I say things like that? Or my personal favorite is, well, you know, God, that's bad, but I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as them. At least I'm doing pretty good here, right? Friends, the truth is, is maybe more than we care to admit, we are a lot like this lawyer here in this passage. Self-righteousness, self-salvation, self-defense, those are our de facto default settings. That's what we fall back on every single time. And so, let us not miss us, miss ourselves in this story. The point of the parable is not simply to remind us to be kinder to our neighbors, though that is going to be part of the point we make. That's not the main point. The main point is to show us our great need for mercy, is to show us Jesus and what he has done for us Just as he shows the rich young ruler, just as he shows so many, he is showing this lawyer his complete inability to save himself. So we see a lawyer's questions. Now we move to the illustration that Jesus gives that that makes this point so clear. And so the second thing I want you to see is good and bad neighbors. Good and bad neighbors. In verse 29, uh, the lawyer says, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replies with this story. Uh, He tells of a man who who is in great need, who uh, while he's on his journey from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho, he falls in among robbers who beat him, who take his clothes, who leave him half dead there on the side of the road. And as he's laying there by chance, who should pass? But three men, two of which who seem like obvious candidates to help him, right? The first two, a Levite and a priest, they come by. And these are the men that that you would expect to have compassion, right? These are men of God. These are men who love the Lord and love God's people, who serve them in this way, or supposed to be, serving them in this way over and over and over again. And yet what happens? 
Not only do they not show compassion on this man, but they go to the complete opposite side of the road in order to avoid him. Now, that's, that's, they, they were committed to this, right? They saw him, and instead of going and helping him, they go to the complete opposite side of the road. Though they know, surely, the obligation to love their neighbor... They couldn't be inconvenienced, or maybe they couldn't take the risk to stop, or maybe they couldn't get involved with with such a mess of a person. Whatever it was, they could have justified it in a thousand different ways. Whatever their reason was, they didn't stop, and in so doing, they show us what a bad neighbor is. Now, as shocking as these religious men's omission might have been, the identity of the third passerby it would have been even more shocking still, right? The third man that comes by, Jesus says, is a Samaritan. A Samaritan. Now, remember, if you can, uh, the, the relationship that the Jews and the Samaritans had. If you go back to John chapter 4, you get a glimpse of this with, with Jesus at the woman at the well, right? You remember she says, all right, you, these, you Jews say that we're supposed to worship on this mountain, but our fathers say we're supposed to worship on this mountain. Which mountain is it? And the point that she's making is that, that the Samaritans, they had, had intermarried with Assyrians, and they had kind of, of a, um, invented their own religious practices, right? They had invented their own religious place of worship. And so, as one commentator says, the Jews viewed them as half-breed heretics. Half-breed heretics. And now look, I'm sure those sentiments cut both ways. And so when Jesus says... A Samaritan came along. He is challenging all of this lawyer's cultural, ethnic, and religious assumptions. He he is challenging him on every level to consider who a real neighbor may be. The Jews, they wouldn't stop to help this man. But now here, the Samaritan does. And notice how far his kindness extends. It begins simply with compassion, with a feeling. He cares for this one who is in such terrible condition. Now that's wonderful. That's where this should begin. But how much good would it have done if that was as far as this man's kindness had ever gone? You know, if you're hungry right now, and I'm sure some of you are, and I really shouldn't do this because this is going to make you even more hungry, but if you're hungry right now, thinking about a sandwich is not going to fill you up, right? It's not going to make you any less hungry. It's just going to make it worse. Well, friends, when we see someone in need, thinking compassionate thoughts, even loving them from a distance, while that may be kind, it may be okay, it does them very little good, right? And so we, have, we see here that, that his compassion, these feelings that he has, they work themselves out how? Indeed. He goes and he binds up the wounds of this man with oil and wine, something that would have been costly to him. Remember, he's a man on a journey as well. And so these things would have been important for him as he traveled along the way. Then he puts the man on his own animal and takes him to an inn. He finds him shelter. He finds him a place to recover. He stays with him overnight to try to care for the man. And then the next morning as he leaves... He leaves two denarii there with the innkeeper, with a promise of more. He says, you care for him, and if you, if you spend more than this, I'll come back, and I will repay you. In short, this Samaritan's compassion, 
It's costly. It's costly as he sacrifices his time, his convenience, his money, his plans, maybe his reputation. He he sacrifices in order to help a complete stranger, a complete Jewish stranger. And in so doing, he shows us what a good neighbor looks like and who our neighbor truly is. Now, I'll be honest with you. I would love to have been a fly on the wall or wherever they were when Jesus looks at the lawyer and he says to him, now, who, who was a neighbor to this man? Because you can see and you can hear it in the response, his hesitance to answer the question honestly. Notice he does not say, oh, it was the Samaritan who helped him. He says it was that one. He's, he's doing his best not to talk about this person that he is supposed to hate. He says it was that one who showed him mercy. It's the one who showed him mercy. He got it right. Here, Jesus, he, he strips this lawyer of all of his self-righteousness. He, he strips him of all of his understanding by pointing him to who the, the neighbor truly is. Now, we don't have time to do it, but I would love to just sit down here and consider this parable deeper because there's so much, so many great practical lessons to learn from this. God puts people in our lives all the time, and we're like the Jews. We go to the complete other side of the road to try to avoid them. But here, the question becomes not so much who is my neighbor, but who am I being a neighbor to? And the question is, is everybody, everybody in your path is someone you are supposed to be a neighbor? The answer is, just, is everybody in your path is supposed to be someone you're a neighbor to. And so we see a good, we see a bad neighbor, we've seen a lawyer's questions. But, but finally, as we try to conclude this, what I want you to see is Jesus' command there at the last half of 37b. He says, now you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Now, friends, again, we must recognize in that command a twofold meaning. On the one hand, certainly, he wants us to live as this Samaritan does in the parable. He wants us to care for those around us. From our closest relative to, to our worst enemy, we are obligated to love. We are obligated to care for those who are close to us with a costly, sacrificial love in a way that might inconvenience us, inconvenience our plans, inconvenience our thoughts, what we wanted to do. Now, again, we don't have time to get into this very deeply, but friends, consider that in the world that we live in today. Consider that in America where we stand on our rights as Americans. I have rights to do this. Consider that when we have rights as Republicans or Democrats, when we have rights according to our economic status, according to the color of our skin, whatever it may be, we all stand on our rights. What was Jesus? What would he say to all of that? Well, friends, I'm afraid he would bring us down just several notches by reminding us, hey, this is not about you. You go and you live for other people. You go and you care for your neighbor, and then you'll be okay. Don't, don't worry about your own needs. Worry about others. And so this command to love our neighbor, it stands and it is as relevant now 
as it was 2,000 years ago. But friends, the second part of this that we cannot miss, and we've said it multiple times, but it's worth saying again, is that as Christ gives us this command to love with a holy love, it reminds us not just how we approach our neighbor, but it reminds us of how we approach him. Friends, his commands are clear. We cannot keep them. He, he, has, he has given them to us as clear as day. He's given us the, the Ten Commandments. Jesus has given us uh, the, the Beatitudes. He's given us the Sermon on the Mount. Paul, he lays it all out for us very clearly. And the truth of our hearts is we cannot do it. And so what must we do? That's the question. It's the question he begins with. It was the right question from the start. He just asked it in the wrong way. What must we do to inherit eternal life? Should we seek to justify ourselves? Should we try just a little bit harder to be good? Maybe that will get us over the hump? No. All of our goodness, all of our kind, it would never do us any good. Instead, we must cry out for mercy. Instead, we must stand before a holy and righteous God and repent, confess our sins to him, show him, tell him the reality of who we are. Now, as I stand here and I tell us all to do that, I'll admit to you, that's a terrifying thought, to stand before a holy God, one who is just and is righteous, is perfect, to stand before him as sinners, to confess our sins, to put ourselves at his will, which is what he's calling us to do. Friends, there's a terror in that. Here's the truth. When we do cry out that way, what do we find? When we cry out to our God for mercy, when we come to Jesus confessing our sins, repenting, truly repenting, what do we find? Not an angry, vindictive God. Not one who has a scowling face at us. We don't find one who is prepared and ready to give us what our sins deserve. Instead, we find a Savior who is compassionate. (laughs) We find a Savior whose compassions exceed even the compassions of this Samaritan in our story. We find one whose humility, whose self-sacrifice, he gave of himself completely, which is what he's calling us to do, but he gave of himself completely by coming to a manger, by eventually going to a cross so that we might live Friends, in truth, we find a neighbor and we find far more. We find a Savior who, like this Samaritan, will pick us up, who will bind up our wounds, not not with wine, not with towels, but with his own blood, and who will pay not only the debt that we owe right now, not only the debt that we have incurred in our past, but he will pay our debt forevermore. He will make us righteous as he is righteous. Friends, this is a command to go out and to live for Christ, to be sure. But it is also a command to every single one of us today to fall first at His feet and to find all the compassion, all the joy, all all the righteousness that we will ever need. Friends, today, will you 
fall at the feet of Jesus, this one who came and was born to take your sins, who went to the cross, who died in your place, who has risen again, seated at God's right hand. Will you bow before him and cry out for mercy to him? Friends, if you do, I promise you, he will not turn you away. He will invite you in and he will give you beyond your heart's desire. He will give you more than you can ever imagine. He will give you himself. He will give you salvation. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider this familiar story to us, Lord, it's easy for us to just read over it. It's easy for us to dismiss it as something that we know so well. Uh, But Lord, I pray that it would uh, make a great effect on our hearts. Uh, Lord, not only would it cause us to be more compassionate, not only would it cause us to to love our neighbor as you have intended for us to do, uh, but Lord, may it show us ourselves. Uh, May it show us our failings in that area and in so many others. Uh, And may it push us to Jesus. Uh, Lord, may we, maybe for the first time, cry out to him for mercy and for grace. May we cry out to him for the millionth time, for mercy and for grace, to find one who is compassionate, one who is abounding in steadfast love, one who cares for his people not only now but forevermore and who will get us safely home. May you show us Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen.